Well, we're so happy that you're with us this morning, and I've really enjoyed the service today. I enjoyed seeing our children and uh, all of them, all those kids on the stage leading worship today. They did a phenomenal job. <laughs> Amen. It's great to watch them. It's great to be led by them. And uh, they were all sitting in this section right over here. A number of children's leaders were with them today. I want to commend those children's leaders. Our preschool, our children's leaders, week in and week out, serve the Lord by serving the needs of the kids and be able to teach them the Word of God, raising up another generation of strong believers in Christ. And you want to join them, then let us know. Let us know. Just come to Guest Central and say, I want to be a part of that great team that's helping them do that because we have a lot of kids that we want to uh, bring up in the, in the truth of the Lord and to serve the Lord in a great way. And we would love to have you be a part of that. Take your Bibles this morning and turn to Luke chapter 22, if you would. And while you're turning to Luke 22, as we get into the last part of the Jesus series called Passion, we'll be moving from today all the way to Easter uh, week by week in Luke 22, 23, and 24. Of course, the final chapter of Luke deals with the resurrection of Christ. That'll be Easter Sunday morning. And uh, I want you to know that the week before Easter Sunday morning, uh, which will be March 25th, we'll actually do a cross service. We'll reenact the cross on Sunday morning at 11 a.m. right in this room on March 25th as part of our Jesus series, as part of the Passion uh, segment of our Jesus series. So I'll be building a cross on Sunday morning at 11 o'clock. This is a great way for you to invite uh, some of your loved ones, some of the people that you've been focusing on, praying for. Uh, we specifically ask you to do five things with people. Number one, identify the one you want to pray for. Secondly, begin to intercede for them and pray. Uh, thirdly, uh, begin to invest in their life. Begin to spend some time, build relationships with them, have coffee, uh, have them over at your house, whatever it is that you build a relationship with someone. And then invite them to one of our events that we have week in, week out. Sunday mornings are always a big event, but March 25th will be that special cross service. The final week uh, of the series will be Resurrection Sunday or Easter Sunday, April 1st. Those are great times to invite them. Also, impart, impart good news to them, impart the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's an important thing. Last week, we had over 1,000 families commit to be a part of Love One. They said, we want to lead the way by loving people around us or getting to know people we don't know and uh, building a relationship with them for the purpose of inviting them to come with us in worship and knowing Christ or sharing the good news with them. We have these cards still available. For those of you that weren't able to make it, we want you to know you can still be a part of Love One. In fact, if you did not get to fill out a card last week and make a commitment, even if you haven't identified the one that you'll focus on, you be the one that says, I'm going to do this. I'm going to ask God to help me identify someone, but I'm going to put my name on a card and say, I'm going to be part of that thousand or more families that are reaching out to someone else in 2018. It's all year long. It's a way for us to focus all year. Hey, I'm thankful for a thousand families doing that. What do you think about that? That's worth celebrating, isn't it? A thousand families. That means there are at least a thousand ones out there that are going to be loved on and prayed for over the course of 2018. It's going to be an exciting thing. Let's stand together. In Luke chapter 22, the, the title of this segment of the Jesus series is called Passion. And today, the message is called Poured Out. You'll see why in just a moment. Luke 22 is taking place in Jerusalem. Jesus has already come into the city, and it's his last week. The week of passion in the Gospels is the week where Jesus demonstrated love so powerfully as he marched to the cross. 
And so we pick it up in Luke chapter 22, beginning in verse 1. Now the feast of the unleavened bread, which is called Passover, was approaching. The chief priests and the scribes were seeking how they might put him to death, for they were afraid of the people. So the religious leaders did not like Jesus at all. They wanted to eradicate him. Verse 3. And Satan entered into Judas, who was called Iscariot, belonging to the number of the twelve. And he went away and discussed with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. They were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and began seeking a good opportunity to betray him to them apart from the crowd. Now, the, the leaders knew that if they betrayed Jesus and captured Jesus and arrested Jesus in a crowd, the crowd would object. Because most people saw Jesus as this miracle worker, as this one who came from God, a prophet, a true prophet, a true miracle worker and speaker of the truth, and they loved Jesus. They were mesmerized by all who he did, by his compassion, his love, but the religious leaders were against him. So they were finding some silent, private moment to arrest Jesus. Verse 7, then came the first day of the unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. And Jesus sent Peter and John and saying, go and prepare a Passover for us so that we may eat it. They said to him, where do you want us to prepare it? And he said to them, when you have entered the city, a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him into the house that he enters. And you shall say to the owner of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large furnished upper room, prepare it there. And they left and found everything just as he had told them and they prepared the Passover. When the hour had come, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I shall never again eat it until it's fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he said, take this and share it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until the kingdom of God comes. And when he had taken some bread and given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup after he had eaten, saying, This cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of the one betraying me is with mine on the table. For indeed, the Son of Man is going as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to discuss among themselves which one of them it might be who was going to do this thing. Father, in Jesus' name, this incredible text and this incredible dinner experience with these disciples has so much meaning for us today. Help us to walk away grasping all that took place and what it means for us today. Help us feel your love and understand how real it is through all these events and words. We ask this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. amen. Please be seated if you would. The week of passion always named to denote what Jesus is about. You know what drove Jesus to the cross? It was not religious leaders and Pharisees. It was not Judas. It was not the Roman soldiers. What, what drove Jesus to the cross was the incredible love of the Father for us, that Jesus would come and die on a cross for us. He was compelled by love. And everything Jesus went through in this last week was motivated by love. He poured out his life because he loved us. Now, the scenario was centered around some disciples that have been following him three years. And while we have a tendency to think these are the future leaders of the church, these are the people that Jesus is choosing to build the church on in terms of leadership, but they're also just normal human beings just like you and I. 
There are people with failures and sinful lives and have all kinds of problems. Who knows the family problems they went through and the personal problems they went through. But Jesus literally is letting them represent all future individuals and pouring his life out for them. From the best of the crowd to the least of the crowd, including Judas, these people represent us and Jesus is demonstrating incredible, incredible love for people. And we have that need. We're always on a quest for love. We have a need for love. We're empty apart from love. And we do so much, so many things, even compromising things because we think it might get us love. We need love. We're love-starved individuals. We're love-starved human beings. And here is Jesus demonstrating the amazing love the Father has for us. This is an amazing passage for us today to learn some things about what Jesus shows us. There's three words that kind of characterize the flow of this text. The first word is conspiracy, conspiracy. The Bible says in verse three that Satan entered into Judas. There's kind of a superhero backstory, if you will, uh, at, at this unfolding and, and that story going on behind the main thing, behind the thing that, that Jesus is demonstrating and, and declaring that he's going to the cross is a backstory and the backstory is one of a conspiratory move by Satan to try to put Jesus to death so he cannot accomplish his purpose. And Satan enters into that story. Now the phrase is in verse three that he entered into Judas, but it's meant metaphorically. While demons can enter into individuals, Satan does not enter into another person, but he places thoughts and intentions and ideas into people's minds. And that's exactly what he's doing. He's using Judas as a pawn and he's moving him into place so that he can conspire to somehow hold Jesus back from accomplishing the mission of the gospel. Now, whenever you see Satan referred to in the scriptures, just understand who he is. He's very real. He's a real person. He's supernatural. You can go back in the Old Testament and find that he's one of those leading angels that was cast from heaven in the huge battle that took place. He's the prince of the devil. His name means adversary. He is the opposer of God and all believers. He's always in conspiracy against our Lord and he is defeated every single time. Somebody say amen to that because it's true. What we have here is not a left-wing conspiracy and not a right-wing conspiracy taking place but a satanic conspiracy to somehow disrupt Jesus' movement to the cross, a demonic conspiracy. So he enters into Judas in the way of ideas and planning and putting in his heart a plan to betray the Lord Jesus Christ. I just want to call, call out for just a moment some truth behind it. Satan is always opposing the gospel. He's always wanting to hold us back from living it out, always wanting to hold us back from sharing it with other people. He's always at work doing that. While he may be doomed and someday we'll be cast into the lake of fire, until that moment he's cast into the lake of fire, he will be actively opposing every aspect of the gospel in your life or in any church. He showed up constantly in the Bible. In the Garden of Eden, where he tempts Adam and Eve. In the life of Job, where he came to make Job suffer. In Herod's movement to try to extinguish the Christ child. He faced Jesus and the temptation in the wilderness, where Jesus was tempted beyond anything we have ever experienced, and yet he did not sin. And then here, he was always at work. You need to be aware. You need to beware of the activity of Satan, who's always opposing the gospel in your life. But bigger than that side story and that conspiracy is 
a picture of intimacy that I want you to grab hold of this morning. You see, it was because of love and because of intimacy with these disciples that he pulls them all together for this very, very special Last Supper. Verse 14 says, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you. No matter how you slice these words, it all speaks of an incredible compassion, an incredible love, a strong desire and an urgency to sit with these disciples uh, to help them understand what he was about to do, to help them understand how much he loved them and how far he was willing to go to secure their salvation before Almighty God through those acts. Now again, these are disciples. They're not only followers in training, but they're recipients of this really close friendship and love Jesus had with all that worked with him and walked with him. How he loved this motley crew of men, I don't know. Because these men were from every walk of life. You have, you have fishermen, you have tax collectors, you have all kinds of men. You had men that were fighting over which one of them was the greatest, even in these scenes surrounding the Lord's Supper, and yet he clearly loved them all. And among them all was the traitor of them all, Judas himself. But Jesus' passion was being poured out. He was demonstrating his love for them, and he draws them close in this intimate moment where he conveys to them, I'm about to go to the cross and die for you. And the messages he gives them are powerful. John 13 has one of the accounts of this Last Supper. John, John's account of this has Jesus washing the disciples' feet as they come into this meal before they take part in the Passover. Can you imagine being a follower of Jesus and you come into the upper room and you know there's a special supper planned and you know it's all preordained that God has set this up in such a unique way. Peter and John have gone before you and when they come back, they're saying everything is unfolding just like Jesus said. And we saw a man with a water pot actually going to the house. We followed him in there and he took us up to this upper room and now we're preparing this meal and it's all happening just like that. So as they come up, Jesus is in that upper room and he's got a, he's got a water basin and a towel. And as each man comes in, he washes their feet. Can you imagine how humbling that was to have your feet washed by the sinless Savior of the world? You remember Peter's reaction in John chapter 13, oh Lord, you're not gonna wash my feet. And Jesus said, if I don't wash your feet, then none of you is washed. And so Peter, characteristically, Peter blurts out, then not only my feet, but everything, everything, Lord, watch me all, watch me completely. One by one, he washes those disciples' feet. It was an act of love, it was an act of service. It was a picture of the greatest ever, God in the flesh, kneeling down in front of the least of them, and washing their feet. Can you imagine what that moment must have been like when it came to Judas? Can you imagine that? We know that Jesus is God. The Bible says about God, he declares the end from the beginning. Therefore, Jesus knows everything that's about to unfold, including who's about to betray him. The whole text demonstrates that to us. Jesus knows exactly what's about to take place, and yet he still kneels before Judas and washes his feet. I always am encouraged by that. I'm always challenged by that. It tells me several things. First of all, it tells me I ought to be willing to wash the feet of the person that hates me the worst. I ought to be willing to wash the people and serve, wash the feet of the people or serve people, even if they have no affection for me at all. It's a matter of serving God by serving others. That's an important, important part. But it also says to me that Jesus 
He's willing to serve anyone, no matter how far away they are or how bad their motivations are. He's willing to bridge the gap and give them an opportunity to know his love. And as this last supper unfolds, this intimacy and the message inside that intimacy, the message of his love, the message of his passion for them is very clear. There's some things I want you to see here. First of all, the symbol of Passover will become reality. We, we see that this meal is a Passover meal. And in verse 12 and 13, they're, they're, they're setting it all up. They found everything just as it should be. And, and the Bible says in verse 15 that he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. The Passover meal has been being observed for hundreds and thousands of years in Jewish life by now. Remember, the Passover took place at the Exodus, if you recall, where God told Moses that you go and set my people free. And if you remember, Pharaoh held the people of Israel. He held the Hebrew people captive. They were slaves. They worked to death, literally. And God used Moses to set them free, but he used a series of plagues to be able to move Pharaoh's heart. But each time he sent a plague, Pharaoh's heart was hardened even more. And the children of Israel were even held more captive until the last one. The last one was the plague of the angel of death. And the Passover took place in that the children of Israel were given the command, slay a lamb, an innocent lamb, and smear the blood of the lamb over the doorpost of your home. And when the angel of death passes over, it will pass over your home, but strike dead the firstborn of all in Egypt. And it was that grief that caused Pharaoh to step back. And it was that encouragement that the Passover brought to the children of Israel that allowed them to realize God was working on their behalf and they were set free. The exodus unfolded. And from that time onward, the celebration of the Passover, this meal commemorated the great deliverance that God gave Israel. An incredible story. If I were to summarize Passover, I would simply say Passover was the feast commemorating the delivery of the Jews from slavery to freedom as a people. And when the Jewish family sat down and reenacted this, when they commemorated this, the conversation would center around how God delivered them as a nation. And the lamb, the slain lamb was central to that. Every family would slay a lamb. And they would literally roast the lamb. And that, that whole idea there of the sacrifice of that lamb so they could preserve their life and their future was central to the conversation. The whole meal centered around the significance of the lamb and how huge the impact of that lamb and the blood that was smeared over the doorpost was for them to be set free. And so as they had this conversation, as any Jewish people group would have, Jesus is leading up to this moment where he's about to say to them, I am the lamb. All the Old Testament observances of the innocent for the guilty, the lamb being slain to wash away sins and to allow the angel of death to pass over, all those observances, the high priest sacrificing the lamb every day on the day of atonement, all those blood sacrifices leading up to this moment, I'm going to fulfill them all. It was John the Baptist when he first saw Jesus who proclaimed this when he saw him the Bible says that John cried out, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Recognizing who Jesus was. Recognizing the path he would be on for the next three years. 
recognizing that he would be here at this moment, at this time. Let me ask you the question, how massive would that, be, would that fulfillment be? To commemorate and to celebrate hundreds and even thousands of years for Jesus to stand in front of these disciples and say, I'm going to be the final Passover. I'm going to be the lamb that's slain. I'm going to be the one that fulfills everything you've looked ahead to. With the symbol of Passover becoming reality. And when Jesus said, this is my body, which is given for you. This is my blood, which is shed for you. It was a, it was a picture of that new covenant that we have now with Jesus. You know, when we have the Lord's Supper now, we celebrate Jesus. We don't celebrate the Passover lamb uh, in Egyptian times when the children of Israel were set free. We do commemorate that. We talk about that. We give the background behind that. But we celebrate not the type, but the reality, Christ. I'm telling you that when the blood of Jesus is over your doorpost, meaning over your heart, over your life, then the angel of death has to pass over you. You're given eternal life. I'm telling you, you're given forgiveness of sin. Jesus is telling these disciples, this is what's about to unfold. In my life, in my life, my blood will be shed for you. There's also the suffering that Jesus would demonstrate love with. Because as he suffered, he would be demonstrating his love for them all the way through. We see in verse 15 as he said, I desire to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. When Jesus talked about the suffering, it was very rarely responded to by the disciples, maybe in part because Peter one day tried to rebuke Jesus from that suffering, and Jesus in turn rebuked him. Get thee behind me, Satan. So they rarely talked about it. They rarely brought it up, but when Jesus would say something about it, I believe they misunderstood exactly what he meant. They were aware of his supernatural power, but they weren't really aware of why he would have to suffer. They were hoping he would be a conquering king. He would overwhelm the Roman armies that he would lead victorious the Israelites into a glorious new future on earth. But what he was conveying to them was, my kingdom is not of this world. Take your Bibles and turn to Isaiah 53 for just a moment, if you would. One of the great chapters of the Old Testament which talks so much about what happened at the cross and speaks so powerfully about his suffering and his death and gives us so many insights about God's purpose in Jesus' suffering and in his death. I want us to look at this morning. Think about the suffering of Jesus when you read Isaiah's prophecy. Verse 3 of Isaiah 53. He was despised and forsaken of men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Now this is Jesus that Isaiah is talking about, the miracle worker, the one who walks on water, the sinless son of God, the one that people love to be around because of his loving nature, his forgiving nature. This is Jesus who's being reviled. Verse four, surely our griefs he himself bore, our sorrows he carried, and we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. You catch the line there? Our sins, our grief he bore. Look at verse seven. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter, like a sheep that is silent before it shivers. So he did not open his mouth. Look now at verse 10. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, bruising him, putting him to grief, that he would render himself as a guilt offering, that he would see his offspring. 
He would prolong his days and the good pleasure of the Lord would prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. He would bear for the disciples their pain, their suffering. He would walk through this on their behalf. You know, sometimes we get kind of caught up in how hard life is and we forget that when Jesus came, he came not only to die for us, but he came to identify with us completely in our hardship and our difficulties. We, we feel like we're not given a fair shake. We feel like we go through an inordinate amount of pain and difficulty. We have all kinds of barriers in front of us, and we get frustrated with just living life sometimes. Some of us have had to suffer in a bad way through horrible illnesses or, or horrific breakdowns in relationships, all kinds of problems that come against us in life. Some of us are innocent victims of some sort of violence, some sort of abuse, whether it be sexual or verbal or, or physical abuse, and we go through all kinds of things. And one of the reasons Jesus suffered so deeply is so that he could identify with you in your worst moment, through your worst experience or your worst fear or the moment where you felt like there was no point in living. There's no reason to stay connected or stay alive. He went through all that to identify fully with you. That's why the Bible says we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is tested in all ways as we are yet without sin. Just know this, whatever pain you're walking through or have walked through or will walk through, Jesus has suffered at least to that degree and more. Whatever temptation you went through, he went through that and more. He identifies with you fully. He suffered on our behalf. And more than anything else, he knows. He knows what it's like. He knows how to come rescue you. He knows how to walk with you through whatever pain it is. The suffering would demonstrate his love, but the sacrifice of Jesus would allow redemption. In our text in Luke chapter 22, look back in verse 19 and 20. It says, And when he had taken some bread and given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. My body is given to you. And the same way he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, This is the cup which is poured out for you. It is the new covenant in my blood. For you, for you in your place. Turn back over to Isaiah 53 again. Verse 12, the concluding, the summarizing top of that chapter says this. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great. He will divide the booty with the strong because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors, that is, the thieves on both sides. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. That simply says that the sacrifice of Jesus was designed to accomplish redemption, forgiveness for all of us. You know, I love to share the gospel. I love to tell people about Jesus. I like to talk about um, what he did on the cross. But most people I find don't really understand fully what happened at the cross. Somehow they see Jesus as being someone that was martyred or he died because of the violence of the mob or because of the violence of Pilate or Herod. They don't really get the idea that, that Jesus literally allowed himself. They forget that he said, no man takes my life from me. I lay it down, but I lay it down that I may take it up again. They don't remember that part. So consequently, when I share the gospel, I love for people to be able to see what, what we call the record book of sin illustration, where, where sin is transferred from every single one of us onto the life of and the back of Jesus as he hung on the cross. 
And I do it, something like this. You've seen it many times, I'm sure. But always, always, it's helpful to see it again. If this hand represents your life and this is you, and I take this phone and let this phone be placed on your life, and you, it represents everything you've ever done, a record book of everything you've ever said or thought, and that record book is on you, you're responsible for it. Now just imagine how much of life you've lived, how many years, how many days, how many hours you've lived, how many words you've said, how many actions you've taken or failed to take, and everything recorded, good and bad, is there in that record book, and it's on you. For just a few moments, let me let this hand represent God. We know because the Bible teaches us about God that God's character is that he's a loving, merciful God who doesn't want to punish us for our sin, but he's also a just judge who will by no means let the guilty go unpunished. And the problem with that for us is that the offense of sin separates us from this holy God. There's nothing we can do to rise above the level of our sinfulness. There's nothing we can do to undo what we've already done. That barrier is there and we can't fix it and we can't get around it. But God loved us so much that he sent his son Jesus. John 3.16 reminds us of that. And this hand represents Jesus here now because Jesus came to walk with us and identify with us fully like we've been talking about today. The Bible says about Jesus as he died on the cross that he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf that we might become in him the righteousness of God. But Isaiah 53 verse 6, the verse we didn't read a moment ago, says so powerfully what really happened 2,000 years ago from the perspective of God as well as from our perspective now. Here's what it says. It says, all of we like sheep have gone astray, each of us to our own way. But he that is God has laid upon him that is Christ, the sin of us all. Now the power of the cross is that God, by a divine act, took all the sins of mankind, just as Isaiah 53 says, just as Jesus said in the Passover meal with the disciples when he says, I'm going to give my blood for you all. And God lays the sin of all mankind on Jesus who pays for our sin, who's buried after he dies, who rises again the third day, standing at the right hand of God and offers us the opportunity for eternal life if we will personally respond by repentance and faith in Jesus. Understanding, understanding that is key to salvation. It's key to the gospel. I've actually shared this gospel and this way of sharing the gospel with people before who have stopped me in the middle of that little demonstration and said, let me have that. I get that now. I understand that now. Let me have that. This is what Jesus is telling the disciples. He's saying, I'm gonna take suffering upon myself. I'm gonna take death upon myself. And the Passover accomplished a great deal. But think for a moment about what salvation accomplishes. The Passover when it took place, the lamb was slain. By the salvation, Jesus was crucified. He died. Not a lamb, not an innocent animal, but the sinless son of God physically died. At Passover, Pharaoh was overcome. The salvation, Satan and sin were overcome. At the Passover, the nation was delivered from Egyptian bondage. But at salvation, individuals are delivered and set free from the power of sin and the penalty of sin. At Passover, the Israelites were able to walk in freedom all the way to the promised land years later. But salvation allows us to walk in freedom all of our days until heaven takes place for us. The Passover has powerful 
implications, but salvation has eternal implications for us forever and ever and ever because of the Lamb of God, not just an animal who died. We have an incredible opportunity to understand this intimacy and this love and this passion that God has for us through this Passover meal that Jesus had, this Last Supper. There's conspiracy, there's intimacy, and then this text really ends with sovereignty. And I love the unfolding of this as it begins to show us in verse 22 and following. It says, for indeed the Son of Man is going as it has been determined, but woe is that man by whom he's betrayed. So Jesus is talking about Judas and the fact that someone's going to betray him without giving away his name. And everybody's wondering, how's this going to happen? Is this going to usurp your plans, Jesus? Is this going to turn everything upside down? But this is loaded with meaning. Listen to me for just a minute. Although most had Jesus pegged for military or government leadership, but his kingdom was bigger than that. And they didn't really realize that until these moments. They were amazed at how everything had fallen into place in terms of the details of this Last Supper. Go find that man. Follow him into the house. It'll be set up upstairs. Go do that. He shares about his betrayal, but even that falls under his sovereignty. And the principles we understand behind it is no matter what man tries to do, no matter what Satan tries to do, no matter what kind of opposition takes place, no matter what kind of conspiracy is unfolding, God will have his way and God will make a way for us to have life with him and for us to have forgiveness with him and for us to have eternity with him. God is in control. God has always been in control. And the one that declares the end from the beginning allowed everything that Satan could throw against him and continued to go to the cross where he ultimately disarmed all of Satan's power and all of the power of the enemy. He's victorious, there's no doubt about it. He's in control, there's no doubt about it. And no matter what you think about your life, no matter how out of control you think he is, let me just tell you today, Jesus has always been in control. He always will be in control. He'll always work everything according to his will. No weapon formed against us will stand because he's Jesus Christ. He's on the throne. He died the way he wanted to die. He died at the moment he wanted to die. He died for the purpose for which he was coming to die so that you and I might know the incredible love and the incredible passion of God the Father for every single one of us today. This is love. This is passion. This is why he came. You know, the one thing that we don't get to see here in this text it's what you and I get to do. We get to respond to his love. His disciples were so confused and at that moment they didn't know what was gonna happen next even though he was telling them how it would unfold. But we look back, we have a chance to look at the backstory and how this story ends. And we have a chance to respond. If I were to tell you that someone would come and he would live for you. He would serve you. He would suffer in your place. He would die in your place. Would that convince you that you're loved? What if I were to tell you that God himself said that? And that God sent his own son to do that for you? Would that make you realize that you're loved? Beyond what another human being could do, beyond what you could love yourself, beyond what some great circumstance could do for you, his love for you just pours out just like his life was poured out for you. And if you realized that, how would you respond? 
I mean, if you for the first time realize he does love me, he loves that motley crew of fishermen and tax collectors and betrayers and traitors. He, he loved them. If he loved them, surely he could love me. If it were not too much for him to love Judas and wash his feet, he could love me, right? Yes. And the answer is yes, 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 he can love you. So how would you respond to that kind of love? Would you respond by saying, oh, cool, get up and walk out? Or would you respond by stopping, by marveling that anyone could love you, especially God, love you and I like he does, and staying amazed that he cares so much for you? Would you stop and would you say, love like that demands a response? It demands my faith. It demands my trust. It demands everything I have. See, those disciples were going to get a chance to respond that way in the days ahead. You have a chance to respond that way now, here. If you understand what Jesus did for you, have you responded to him in love and commitment? With your heads bowed, eyes closed for just a moment. I want to ask you that question. If it makes sense to you that Jesus came to die for your sins and give you the gift of eternal life, if that makes sense, if it resonates with you, then let me ask a very pointed question. Have you ever given your life to him? Have you ever trusted him? Have you ever asked him to be your Lord and Savior? Have you ever allowed him to take your life and redeem you and give you a new life? Because in these next two or three moments, if that's never happened with you, can happen right now. I'm going to ask those who pray for our responders to come to the front, if you would. We'll have a group of people up here who are waiting to talk, to answer questions, to pray. And here's what I would say today. I would say, if you understand what we've shared today, and you know that that's never happened to you, you've never made this decision before, to put your faith and trust in Christ that she would do it right now. I would say, don't delay. Don't delay. Jesus came for you. Jesus suffered for you. Jesus died for you. Jesus rose for you. Jesus awaits for you. In just a moment, I'm going to pray that I'm going to invite you to come forward. You'll have all the time you need. You'll be able to visit with someone that can answer all your questions, but respond to his love. Respond. You can say yes. You can say no. You're free to respond, but he's given you an amazing gift. Would you stand with me? Now, as we stand, as I close the service with prayer, at the conclusion of this prayer, you can walk out or you can hang around and walk forward. My encouragement to you today is don't delay the most important decision of your life any longer. Father, in Jesus' name, thank you so much for this amazing love that you have for us. Thank you so much for drawing the disciples close together so we could see what you said to them and how that impacts us. Lord, today, I know there are those in this room that have never, ever made a commitment to you. Maybe they've never realized the love that you have for them. Maybe they've never understood the cross and what it means. But today, help them know that the cross, your life, your suffering, your death was for them individually. And help them to respond now 
Thank you, Father, for what you're going to do in Jesus' name. Amen.